So welcome everybody to today's episode of the Independent Teacher Podcast. And I'm really pleased that I'm joined by Andy Cole. Andy, welcome to today's show. Well, thank, thanks for the invite. I'm super excited to get the get the nod. I've been I've been binge listening to your back catalogue, and it's a pretty high bar. Okay, so. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks for that. We'll stop there then. Yeah. <laughs> um, could you just start by giving our listeners a whistle stop tour of you? Yeah. Um, well, I would describe myself qualified teacher first and foremost, and then author. And sort of now I'm a trainer. I'm a recovering academic, actually, is what I would normally uh, describe myself as. So I went through my sort of career in psychology and all that kind of stuff. And then in 2005, I started to do a PhD at Loughborough Uni, which looked at something called positive psychology, which has essentially switched his psychology totally on its head. So instead of 150 years of psychology, he's always been, what's wrong with you? Phobias, disorders, anxiety, depression, paranoia, trauma is the thing in schools at the moment. We're all learning about trauma, how to spot trauma. And what I realized in 2005 not claiming to have invented positive psychology, but I jumped on it pretty early, was uh, who are the people who aren't ill, which is kind of quite interesting. Because if you think about psychology and 150 years of trying to fix people, despite the best medication, the best counselling, the best therapy we can come up with, mental ill health has been getting worse, not better. So my, my starting point was, uh, what if we're missing a trick? So who are, who are the happy people? I mean, that's the kind of slightly counterintuitive question that psychology actually couldn't answer. Everybody, everybody listening to this podcast, you can all think of in your life a handful of people, probably a single handful of people who've got something extra, an extra energy, an extra sort of smile on the face. They, they rock up in the staff room, sort of even in love on Mondays with, with the job. It's a bit weird. It's almost not right. They've got energy. The kids follow them to the ends of the earth. They seem to, they rock up at a meeting with an open mind and willingness to, to give things a go. So my thing was 150 years of psychology. We've completely ignored them on the grounds of them not being ill. So potted history, sorry, it's gone on a bit. But my thing was to look at, well, who are the happy people? <laughs> what are they doing that allows them to flourish? And thirdly, most importantly, is what might we then learn from them that we could apply to us so we might also flourish as well. And like off air, we've just been discussing how challenging things are at the moment and how, I don't know when people listen to this, but like right now you switch the news on, it is the grimmest. I'm 57. I cannot think of a worse time by switching the telly on and looking at the world. So I think it's needed well-being, and which I know is your passion as well. Well-being, human flourishing, resilience, grit, happiness, whatever you want to call it, it's more important now than it ever has been. Yeah, it's really tough out there, whatever, you, whatever you're doing. Um, now, one of my favourite books, Andy, is The Art of Being Brilliant, which you co-authored uh, with Andy Whitaker quite some time ago now. But I loved the bit, I was hooked right at the beginning with um, Jimmy's Diary. Can you just tell us about that? Um, Jimmy's Diary, right. I, I can't, I can't, no, right? And the reason I can't <laughs> is because I can't get through Jimmy's Diary. I've tried, I've, Jimmy's Diary basically is a story that kicks the book off. And I only ever tried to tell it once at a conference, right? It's quite hilarious. So it was at Stoke City Football Ground, whatever that stadium's called. I've got about 150 social workers, right, on this course. And I thought, I'm going to have a go at telling them Jimmy's diary. And you know when you get halfway through a story and you think, I just can't finish this story, right? Because I'm so emotional. Now, if you're going to break down in tears, you don't want to be doing it in front of 150 social workers for a start because they're all trying to provide therapy and counselling to me. But it's it's essentially, it's a story. I'm not going to do the plots, but I literally can't tell your listeners, right? Um, it's about life. It's about time. It's about what's really important to people. 
and it's about not leaving things too late, basically. Mm. I tell everybody about that beginning part of your your book, Jimmy's Diary. It's just so moving. So I've talked with quite a few teachers in the podcast um, about, which kind of links into Jimmy's Diary, I suppose, work-life balance. Mm. And so many of them are struggling at the moment with work-life balance. So what would your advice be to them with all that wisdom that that you've got? It is is a tough one because, um, well, work-life balance, I would call it life-work balance. So it's any teacher or TA listening to this is, Basically, you are the most important resource in your classroom, right? Forget your photocopying and your worksheets and your textbooks and your iPads. They account for nothing unless you're on top form. So actually work-life balance or life-work balance, whatever you want to call it, becomes really crucial. So self-care, essentially. That is the least selfish thing that a teacher will ever do is take really good care of themselves. Because what the kids need, again, now more than ever, is you zinging and buzzing with creativity and ideas and energy. So you're rocking up on a Monday, you know, feeling lousy or with that, they, they, it's called minor glumness in the pit of your stomach. That, And every teacher gets it sometimes, you know, in the dark winter months when the alarm goes, it's not depression, it's not anxiety, it's not even in your head. It's a, it's a gnawing feeling in, just in the pit of your tummy, minor glumness. It's that kind of, here we go again, not sure I can do this much longer. You know, it's got to be an easy way to make a living, right? And I know you've done 30 years in the classroom and I did a lot of years in the classroom. And when that minor glumness kicks in, we need to we need to address it and i think the easiest so so work-life balance is actually understanding fundamentally teachers are really really good at looking after the kids and looking after their staff and looking after everybody else but looking after yourself is really where the magic source is i mean i i think it all boils down to oh let me just take a little bit of a back step i did some work in the health service a very senior level actually a level maybe where i shouldn't have been like i'm seriously in this nhs trust and I, and I normally, in my training, I'll try and let's have some fun and let's have a bit of a laugh with things and try and give, bring a light touch to it. Well, well no, we don't, want, we don't want fun. They said, we're senior leaders in the NHS. Can you do us a half day on corporate manslaughter, psychological safety and burnout? Like, well, doesn't sound much fun to me. But, but the reason I'm telling you that is it forced me to look at the academic definition of burnout. And the reason I'm not even going to write it down, it is so simple and it will resonate with everybody listening to this. Burnout is when you've cared too much for too long. And you see it every day in the classroom is teachers really care. They care, but caring brings you to your knees. <laughs> now, the easiest way to not burn out is to stop caring. And of course, we don't want you to stop caring. So this dichotomy work-life balance is how the heck am I supposed to give everything and care about every single kid, even the ones who sometimes don't seem to care about themselves? Gulp. How can I do that consistently for 30, 40 years without burning myself out? And therefore, self-care, this looking after yourself, eat, move, sleep. There's a, there was a, there's a University of Warwick, I think it was, off the top of my head, so just bear with, but it said something like um, they tried to equate uh, the monetary value of sleep, and it was something like if you get your eight hours, and most people do need eight hours, actually, you get your proper eight hours of good quality kip every night, it's worth something like £300,000 worth of well-being to you every single year. It's like winning the lottery, going to bed on time and, and waking up feeling refreshed is literally like winning the lottery. So in terms of work-life balance, treat yourself to a lottery win, get your head down on your pillow at nine o'clock. <laughs> and not many teachers do that, do they? <laughs> no, they don't. No, they don't. No. Um, okay, so it's interesting because the next thing I want to talk to you about is having a positive outlook when, when you head off to work. And 
last night I was I wasn't getting my eight hours of sleep. I was watching um, some YouTube and um, Boomtown Rats came on, and it was I don't like Mondays, <laughs> and I thought, oh God, that just so summed up how I how I felt in those last few years of my career. I, I don't like Mondays. Yeah, well, what could I have done, and what can our listeners do to have this really positive outlook when they go to when they go to work? Again, educators have this. Everybody gets this thing called destination addiction, but educators get it more than anybody else. So, destination addiction is that sense of, well, in in classroom, how many times have I been in the staff room and on the whiteboard, number of sleeps till half term or number of days till half term, literally counting your life down, wishing it away. So when you get back after half term, it's like only seven weeks till the next one. And we're literally, it's like happiness is this pot of emotional gold at the end of the rainbow over there somewhere. I think in terms of trying to shift that mindset, I mean, honestly, the average lifespan is 4,000 weeks. That scares the living daylights out of me. As, as a 57 year old, I'm like, oh my gosh, that's it's not a very big number, but it is a lot. It is a big number if you're going through the motions. It, it'll drag, right? So actually 4,000 weeks are going by in a blur. And I think getting your day off to a start, my my game changer, I think it was in the art of being brilliant, um, was, I mean, it's going to sound a bit odd, but I I read a book on mindfulness and one of the sentences said, what you need to do is wake up in the morning being really grateful that you've not got toothache. And I know that might, some of you listening was rolling their eyes at that thinking, can't be that simple. And I'm like, well, what if it is? Because I did that and I didn't just do that once. I did that in 2008. I did it 365 days. So just bear with me, right? So getting out of bed in the morning, most people think getting out of bed is the worst thing in the world. And what I'm suggesting is it's an absolute gift, right? I didn't know that because I was in the habit of hitting the snooze button, try and get another nine minutes and 59 seconds of sleep like everybody else. But then I, for, for day after day after day, my very first thought, and I've got to work hard to manufacture the thought, but no toothache. Oh my gosh, no toothache. Another day with no toothache. Wow, what a fantastic start to the day. So therefore, I'm getting out of bed with gratitude and energy. And that starts me off on the right, literally on the right foot. So when my kids came down for breakfast, um, I'd have some music on. I'd be dancing around the kitchen, serving the Cheerios with a smile on my face. So all of a sudden, my kids were happier. They went off to primary school with a smile. They had, they were, they were, they made friends. They were top of the class. They were like behaving. It was amazing because they were feeling amazing. Yeah. They were feeling amazing because I was feeling amazing. And I was feeling amazing because I didn't have toothache. And I did it 365 days and I didn't miss a day. Then the next year, I just changed the body part. It was kidneys. And then it was ankles. So, I mean, honestly, if that is, I know some people might be rolling their eyes, but that is how I learned how to attack the day, get out of the day with real meaning. But bottom line, I've already alluded to being 57, right? I figure one day I won't be able to get out of bed. That is a fact. One day I'm going to be too ill or I'm going to be too old. So really what I'm talking about is like, well, you can get out of bed. Not having toothache for me made me realise I may as well get out of bed like I mean it. And that tiny little change, attitudinal change, will you'll come in the staff room with twice the energy of everybody else. Yeah. Honestly, yeah. it's so simple. Yeah, brilliant. So what happens when you get into work then and you meet a mood hoover? Yeah, the mood hoovers. I mean, let, let me clarify what a mood hoover is. Um, I'm not talking about depression. So essentially what I did in my PhD, I, was, I put people on a graph of well-being. So I gathered lots of well-being data, how people are feeling during the working hours, was able to plot them on a graph of well-being. And what you'll find is that far too many people are spending far too much of their time towards the bottom third of that diagram, of the, the graph. So it's not depression. It's not. So I want to be clear in terms of mood hoovers. I'm not talking about clinical depression and issues and anxiety and panic. They exist and they're real, but they're not on my graph. I'm talking about most people most of the time are mildly happy most of the time. 
but you can get stuck in being a mood hoover and i know because i was for 40 years nothing wrong with me not clinically depressed but a little bit stuck in rolling my eyes and being negative so like you said that monday morning feeling it's like oh my gosh and i used to share an office with a lady called michelle she was a classic mood hoover her catchphrase nightmare that's all she would come in the staff room nightmare year five's nightmare parking nightmare right and what that would do is drag everybody down. Everybody in the class, in the staff room is like, it is a nightmare. Tutu is hard, right? And it's it, it, it's infectious. That negativity mm. infectious. That's what mood hoovers do. I once read, right? True story. I read an appraisal form. Did some work um, in a big company. I won't say where. Looking at their appraisal system, where every manager has to sit down with every member of staff and have a chat about their performance. And this manager had written of this mood hoover member of staff on the actual appraisal form. This person lights up the room when they leave and that that's your mood over right and every school right this is a serious point every school will have a member of staff or two members of staff when they're not there things are easier right now my top tip on how to tackle mood is i'm not going to give you a top tip on it my top tip is don't be that person don't be that person who's out stayed there welcoming in education who's dragging the happiness out of everybody else all right so the opposite of that is a two percent so back to my, my diagram of well-being, there's a small percentage of the people at the top of the well-being graph statistically significantly happier, 40% more energy. People who are buzzing with aliveness and creativity and vivacity and you call it what you like. Um, but that's where I focus my research on who the heck are they mm. and reporting on what they're doing. Mm. Uh, but yeah, mood hoovers exist and they exist. They're in education because education genuinely is a tough gig. Yeah. There's yeah. no doubt it's physically and emotionally exhausting. Yeah. It's easy to become a mood hoover. And sometimes it's it's good as well to move on to a different job, isn't it? If you get yourself into you know, a different school rather than a different job necessarily. Just you can be in a place for a little bit too long. You can. I think. I've met teachers who don't like kids, right? I mean, that's a bad career choice if you're not liking kids. Seriously, and I'm not even, I'm not even joking on that. Um, so everybody, if, if you've only got 4,000 weeks... You wouldn't, you shouldn't be stuck in a job that you hate, right? So if that's you, you need to either change your attitude and go in as a two percenter, no toothache, no toothache. Go in as it reshape, it reshapes your thinking so you become a, the best version of you. You either need to change your attitude or or yeah. leave the profession. Yeah. Now, one of the things that I do want to talk to you about is is writing books. Um, in September, I, I bought a friend of mine, Shine. She was feeling a little bit down and she said that that book had made a real difference to her. So I've got a couple of questions for you. Um, first of all, you co-wrote that um, book. Um, so what what do you enjoy about working with a, a fellow author and does it bring you any challenges? And of course, the other question um, is why did you write Shine? I know you've written other books as well. Yeah, yeah. I, I've Quite a few of my books are co-authored, actually. So what I'll find is that... So Shine, I wrote with a guy called Gavin Oates. I know Gavin will listen to this. I'll copy him in on, on Twitter. He'll be all over this. Gavin, I went to watch him do a keynote. I think he was up in St Andrews. He's, he's a Scotsman. And I, I knew he was good. I'd heard on the grapevine he was good. And I sat through his keynote. This was years ago now. Probably the best keynote I've ever heard in my entire life, right? It was funny, it was poignant, it was tearful, it was it's like all the emotions all over, landed some really good points. The thing about Gav is he'd never written a book before. So I'm like, how can he not have written a book? Because all he's got to do is literally write down exactly what he just said in that, in that talk. And that's, that's gold dust. So if he's not written a book, I'm like, I rang him up, Gav, do you want to write a book? <laughs> and that, if, you, if you read Shine, right? I think Shine is a strong book. Um, but chapter three... 
think it's chapter three, which is one of Gav's chapters almost entirely. I think it's the best piece of writing that a teacher will ever read because it's all about teaching um, and it's full of humour and energy. And I can say it's the best chapter ever written because Gav wrote it, not me. But it's just brilliant, right? So what you're finding, I know you're co-writing a book as well, which is great. And I think it's, uh, for me, it's, it, there are challenges, um, not with Gav, but there's other also, other people that I've worked with who aren't authors that have been challenging in terms of trying to blend my style with their style. Because I would want to bring a bit of humour and a bit of energy to it. But generally, I think two heads are better than one. That's if that was a, an old wife's science tale or an adage or whatever. And I think it's most of the time it's it's true. And my number one thing when I co-write with somebody else is we've got to write an agreement right at the start where we're not going to fall out over this. We're just not going right, to fall out okay. over it. All right. So some of my best bits will get cut in the last edit, and some of your best bits will get cut, and you'll be upset about that because you thought it was brilliant. But we're not going to fall out over it. So that's um, that's yeah, that was my gap thing. It's been an absolute superb uh, a joy and a pleasure with the vast majority of my co-authors. Okay, so could you tell us as well about some of the workshops that that you offer? Because um, you do a lot of work, don't you, with teachers and with organisations? And I just wondered what format they took and how they could maybe get get in in touch with you as well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, we started out, so the company is Art of Brilliance that I run now, and there's about 20 trainers and, and the team. We just did business stuff to start with so many years ago in 2005 when we kicked off. We were just business. Then we realized, well, teachers are struggling, so we developed a, a range of insets and stuff for teachers, twilights for teachers. Um, and then we realized kids are struggling and parents are struggling. So we put together a whole education package for uh, staff and for students and pupils and, and, and for parents as well to give this kind of holistic approach to well-being. Um, and certainly primary schools, I'm really super proud we do an outstandingly happy primary school project where essentially we deliver some stuff to the kids, then the kids will take it on as a project and deliver it across their school. So we normally pick on year fives because they're about right. They, they get a couple of days of training, then they take it, spread the news at home and spread it everywhere. When we come back and award this fantastic, outstandingly happy school banner, and then in secondaries, which is kind of the same principle really, but um, we, we call it investors in well-being, where essentially kids have got to try and make a difference to well-being to themselves, to their class, and to their school community. So really, it, it, what we're trying to do is embed well-being and positive psychology. So that's strengths and goal setting and resilience and all the stuff that we know is really important right now. Um, embed that in the DNA of the school, literally getting well-being onto the curriculum. Because I tell you what, I mean... it. it every parent listening to this right it's, if, if there's one thing you want for your child if there was just one thing and it's a global thing because i looked at it in my phd is happiness we want we want one thing i want my kid to be happy then we put them through a school system i'm not knocking the school system right because it's great but it is brutal and it's hard work and there's so many kids now with issues of neurodiversity and adhd and autism and uh, dyslexia and dyspraxia. I was in a class in Sheffield l last week and there was 75% of the kids in one class were, have got a label. Now, as a classroom teacher, where am I pitching that lesson? Honestly, I've got a teacher and a TA and I've got three quarters of the class that are struggling with something. It's harder than it ever has been before. So anyway, uh, for, for pupils, for the parents and for the staff, we've got a whole range of workshops on the website. Uh, you can buy into one or you can buy into the ball. But it gets DNA embedded, uh, well-being DNA. And is there a time scale in terms of them getting in contact with you in order to set something up? 
Um, no, I mean, there's, we've got a, a team of trainers. Essentially, if somebody just drops us an email and we'll have a chat, I mean, there's no obligation. You don't have to, but we'll explain what's going on. And then it's a bit of a no-brainer. I mean, there's outstanding happy schools popping up everywhere. It's like, the, think of it like the opposite of Ofsted. So Ofsted will come in and crawl all over you and scare you to death, right? Whereas what outstanding happy is almost a middle finger up to that system. We want to take the, give you, give you less to think about. We want to make the teacher's jobs easier. And the teacher's job becomes really easy when behaviors are, are exemplary and when kids are super positive and when kids are putting their hand up and using the growth mindset stuff. And when kids are rocking up on a Monday with the same passion that everybody else does on a Friday, then the behavior issues will melt away. So that's what we try and do is instill it in the kids and then the kids share it. The kids become the teachers of it, which is counterintuitive, but super powerful. Andy, we've almost come to the end of our conversation. As you know, my podcast just lasts for about 25, 30 minutes. So people can do a bit of multitasking on the way to work and listening to this and feeling really positive. But I want to bring this conversation back to you. Um, we've talked about those 4,000 weeks, but if you could go back in time and give 16-year-old Andy some advice, what what would it be? Um I would, well, first of all, this would be the early 80s. Lose the mullet, mate. Lose the mullet. I mean, you might have thought it was really cool there, but really don't, right? So that's probably facetious advice. But I think um, the other one would be the desire to fit in as a teenager is overwhelming. So you break away from your family and you fit into your tribe and your clan. So your besties. So you fall out of love with your mum and dad and you fall in love with your besties. So fitting in is such an overwhelming thing to do. And I think fitting in is part of something we have to do, but standing out, young Andy, standing out is where your magic source really is. So less fitting in and more, I think more looking around at what the world, everybody else is doing and not doing that is actually quite a brave thing to do, but I would advise 16-year-old self. In fact, here's, here's the best one. I wrote about it in um, in one of the books. It was advice from a five-year-old. I was looking at advice from kids to adults and one, this little boy, I think he's called Eli, four or five years old, his, his life advice was, never put a skunk on a bus right now that's probably not the advice you're expecting here but i think that works li literally and metaphorically so literally like that's good advice because a skunk shouldn't be on a bus but i think metaphorically sometimes i'm the skunk and maybe the bus is my staff room or my classroom or my home so don't be the skunk because one bad person on that but is going to ruin it for everybody else so back to mood hoovers really but top advice for 16 year old me never put a skunk on a bus Andy, brilliant way to end the show really good way to end <laughs> end the show um it's been lovely catching up with you and am i right in thinking just before we came on it you said that you were uh putting out a new edition of the art of being brilliant is that correct yep so the, ori the original art of being brilliant now is 10 or more years old so we got a chance to rewrite it. it's coming out in april 2024 um all new well 50 percent new jimmy's diary is still in oh, there good. Your books have a certain sell-by date now and a, and a you know end of end of date so well, yeah it's coming out uh, look out for it April 20th well I'll send you a copy obviously oh, but everybody else you. look out for it in the shops <laughs> um, Andy thank you so much for today's show thank you ever so much a for joining us absolute pleasure thanks for having me yeah it's been a real pleasure you've been listening to the Independent Teacher Podcast if you like listening to this podcast please consider giving us a five star rating either on Spotify or Apple Podcasts